Welcome to Free and Fair with Frenita and Foley. In this podcast, we break down complicated legal issues leading up to the 2020 U.S. presidential election. I'm Frenita Tolson, Vice Dean for Faculty and Academic Affairs here at University of Southern California Gould School of Law. And I'm Ned Foley, the Director of the Election Law Program at The Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. Before we begin, a quick note. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Hi, Frenita. How are you? Good, Ned. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Um, you know, busy with following all the election news, of course, but uh, it's going to be an important election this year, isn't it? Extremely important. It always gives us so much to talk about. Um, but as you know, life still happens, right? Uh, this Recently, we lost an a, a icon of the civil rights movement, John Lewis, Representative John Lewis, um, and um, and also C.T. Vivian. So um, C.T. Vivian was also um, very important in the civil rights movement, and they both worked towards expanding voting rights for African-Americans and other people of color. Um, and I think this moment invites us to sort of reflect on um, how to best honor them, right? How can we... Um, fold in our conversations about free and fair elections and in a way that sort of thinks about uh, free and fair from the perspective of continuing the fight that both John Lewis and, and C.T. Vivian, in addition to those who have gone before them, right, Dr. King and others, um, how do we continue that fight, right? How do we uh, make sure that, you know, people who are entitled to exercise the ballot can exercise the, the ballot? Um, how do we make sure that our elections remain free and fair, um, how do we ensure the, the legitimacy and integrity of the election results and um, a secure outcome for November? I think that um, in some ways we're still dealing with many of the issues that um, Representative Lewis and, and C.T. Vivian and others fought uh, against in the 1960s, which is sad in some ways, but it's also a call to action. Right. How do we honor them? I think that's right. And I've been thinking similar thoughts. I noticed that a number of people are calling for Congress to pass a new Voting Rights Act or a renewal of the Voting Rights Act um, and, and name it in honor of John Lewis in particular. And I, I share that sentiment, but I also you know, wonder how realistic it is to think that the current Congress is going to, to do that. There was a uh, hearing in Congress this past week just on you know, getting ready for this November's election having to do with the pandemic and the money that was being funded. And one of the issues that came up was whether there were going to be any uh, minimal conditions attached as a matter of federal law to the to the money that Congress might make available. And the Democrats were saying, yes, there should be minimum federal standards. And the Republicans essentially, I'm oversimplifying, were, sending, were saying, you know, send the federal money without any strings attached. So it seemed to me in the short term, the congressional debate is, is not going to be a, a robust one about what is the future of voting rights look like. And I would hate for a, a piece of legislation in honor of John Lewis to be paltry. I think it should be a long-term vision for, for voting rights. So I was thinking, I don't want to get ahead of myself of what Congress is going to look like next year in January after this year's election, but I was thinking that any uh, vigorous, uh, full discussion of civil rights that would honor John Lewis's memory would probably have to wait till next year, not not this year. Is that too pessimistic? I don't think it's too pessimistic, but I I, I do think that it goes back to something that we've talked about before. Um, I don't know if you remember this, but a few conversations ago, we talked about how um, the coronavirus and COVID sort of invites 
short-term solutions for November, right? Like we should sort of think about how to approach the November election. Um, and at that point, the primaries as well, in a way that coming up with solutions that sort of address immediate problems with um, ensuring that people can get absentee ballots and that there is a reasonable amount of in-person voting places come November, just issues like that. And in fact, the uh, voting rights scholars that have weighed in on some of these questions, the reports that have been issued, the blog posts that have been made are all very you know, short term, right? It doesn't. Um, and, and I think some of that is right, right? You know, we have to sort of get over this moment and this hump and it's so unprecedented that um, we have to be careful about advocating for long-term solutions in this moment. Um, but I think a part of me has always rebelled against that a little bit, right? Just this idea that, you know, this is an opportunity, right? This is an opportunity for us to think about these issues and take them seriously, um, especially if we think about how COVID and Corona has exacerbated some of the problems in our system, right? So um, Corona has disproportionately affected people of color. Um, and this also tends to be the demographic that has difficulty voting, right? And so it's not coincidental that the weaknesses in our system um, become manifest uh, whenever we have sort of these emergency situations. The demographics that are um, at a disadvantage in normal times are just significantly more disadvantaged in extraordinary times. Um, and so in my mind, I always sort of resisted this idea that we should think short term. And I wanted to invite a conversation about long-term changes to our system of, of elections, even while recognizing that, yeah, there is something to this idea that let's just fix the problem in front of us. Um, but I do think that if it comes to honoring someone who basically gave their life to this issue, we can't think short term. I mean, I think that's why I'm not, I don't view your approach as pe pessimistic in part because um, there's a certain realism attached, right? I wouldn't want Representative Lewis's name attached to something that's short term, right? I would I want him to be honored with something that's more enduring, something that's more of a fundamental reworking of our system of elections, reworking in a way that works for people of color, that um, goes beyond sort of the emergency of COVID and it represents a more sort of embrace of what we're striving for um, mm -hmm. long-term as opposed to just sort of a short-term fix. And that may come in 2021. That's just re being realistic. It's not, it's very unlikely that it'll happen now. Right. So Fernita, can I ask um, what would be on your wish list if you were writing the piece of legislation that you thought deserved John Lewis's name attached to it, what would be the ingredients that you would want in the in the bill? So, wow, what is my my wish list? Um, you know, uh, the the low hanging fruit is the reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act, uh, new preclearance pr provision. Um, I do think that that remains a, a legislative priority. That is something that a legislative, let's be clear, a legislative priority for Democrats. Um, the Republican Party has resisted the idea of reauthorizing a preclearance provision. And so realistically, that's not something that's happening in 2020. Um, Can I but, pause and just ask you, I mean, I know that we'll talk about other things, but I saw recently a, a proposal, uh, again, not likely to pass this Congress, but that would have um, readopted the preclearance obligation for essentially the southern states that were... Um, uh, subject to preclearance in the earlier version that was struck down by the Supreme Court. I, and I didn't get a chance to look at the details of the new coverage formula and what exactly they changed. But what struck me at the map that I saw that was it, it wasn't a nationwide preclearance formula and it wasn't well represented. 
among northern uh, or non, you know, old Confederacy type states. I mean, California was subject to preclearance, so was New York. So it wasn't exclusively the old South, but not Ohio, not Wisconsin, not some of the northern states that frankly have been not hospitable to voting rights over the last uh, decade or so. And, and I've often wondered whether if we were going to really rethink preclearance, we should rethink it in a way that would put a state like Ohio subject to preclearance as much as North Carolina, even though Ohio was a union state in the Civil War and North Carolina wasn't. You know, and I'd be curious as to your thoughts about what the um, geographical scope of preclearance should look like going forward. I do think the geographical scope has to be broader than the prior preclearance regime. Um, I think if it's focused almost exclusively on the South, that invites Supreme Court review in a way that won't be favorable. Um, That was, I mean, the Chief Justice who wrote Shelby County said that, right? You are identifying Southern jurisdictions to the exclusion of Northern states that also discriminate. Um, So I, I, I do think that it probably has to be something that is tied to, not probably, it has to be tied to existing violations in a way, more recent violations. And I think there are Northern states that will qualify. Um, and so tied to existing violations, possibly tied to practices that have historically been used to discriminate, right? That is a way of getting around this focus on just specific jurisdictions. So um, the closing of polling places, um, um, the adoption of redistricting plans that dilute minority voting strength. These are practices that could be subject to preclearance as opposed to jurisdictions, right? So there are ways where you can craft a, a preclearance uh, regime that looks very distinctive from the prior regime that caused all of the constitutional concerns and that captures Northern jurisdictions. Um, and so I think something like that would honor uh, Representative Lewis in the sense that it, it, it moves the ball forward in thinking about Um, how do we protect the right to vote in the 21st century as opposed to still trying to, as as opposed to protecting the right to vote as if it's still 1970. Right. And um, can I ask one more question along these lines? And and before I do, just in case our listeners aren't as familiar with the concept of preclearance as you and I are, um, I think what what distinguishes uh, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, the part that was effectively nullified by the Shelby County U.S. Supreme mm-hmm. Court decision, is this obligation that states or so-called covered jurisdictions, so it could be localities within a state, a city, or another municipality, have to go to the federal government for permission to make a change in their voting laws. That's mm-hmm. what preclearance means. It's, it's prior approval. And it's obviously... Uh, an exception to the normal practice of of lawmaking in America, where if you think a state law is unconstitutional, whether because it's racial discrimination or violates free speech or what have you, um, the normal practice is to sue in federal court afterwards and complain that the state has adopted uh, a bad law. Um, But Congress back in 1965, as part of the Voting Rights Act, thought it was absolutely essential to have this preclearance or prior approval regime because the, the old Confederacy was so hostile to voting rights acts that, that it was essentially kind of whack-a-mole. Every time you sued to invalidate a bad practice, the state would just do another bad practice. So Congress said, well, we're going to um, turn the tables and that we're not going to let the states do anything in the realm of voting without prior approval. Um, so again, that's there's a long history there and we could go into it, but, but I think that's the basic 
idea, I say that as a preface to my next question because, um, you know, one thought that has crossed my mind, but I, I'm not sure it would pass the current Supreme Court, is the idea of nationwide preclearance. In other words, rather than selecting which states are the bad actors and should mm -hmm. Ohio and Wisconsin be on that list along with North Carolina and Texas, if voting is so important, maybe every state should need prior approval. Um, but do you think the, given the nature of what prior approval for state laws is, do you think the Supreme Court would ever, if Congress were to adopt that, would they ever approve fully nationwide preclearance? Or does it have to be selective in some way? That is the, the paradox of the preclearance regime, right? So the nationwide, a system of nationwide preclearance would address the issue that the court had with singling out the South, right? When the North is acting equally as bad. But um, it would exacerbate the federalism concerns that the court had about the preclearance regime in the first place, right? This idea that the states are the ones that are, um, you know, responsible for basically creating this election system, right? They said, even though Congress can weigh in through various constitutional provisions, they tend to set the, the states tend to set the time, place, and manner of federal elections. And Congress has the power to weigh in, but usually Congress doesn't, right? Um, states are also responsible for setting voter qualifications. And because the court views this as our default, um, a, a piece of legislation that would kind of shift that, right? So yes, the states are setting it, but they have to check in with Congress first. The court is going to treat that as foreign to our system of federalism, right? As, you know, basically the states having to check in with Big Brother in a way that our system doesn't actually endorse. Um, but one thing I've always puzzled about is this idea that singling out jurisdictions is bad. Right. Uh, federal legislation does it all the time when we have environmental legislation, um, you know, usually it targets states that have pollution. <laughs> and, you know, there are certain provisions that apply nationwide, but there are certainly provisions that single out certain jurisdictions depending on what the problem is, um, but also just constitutionally. Um, so I write about a very obscure provision of the Constitution called Section two of the 14th Amendment, which um, allows Congress to reduce a state's delegation in the House if the state abridges the right to vote. So in determining how many seats um, a state gets, Congress can take into consideration the fact that a portion of the population is disenfranchised. Um, and that provision was designed to single out the South, right? That is a constitutional provision that um, the reason they have this very weird and draconian penalty is because they didn't want to target the North. African-American suffrage was not popular in the North. It had lost in um, several elections uh, throughout 1865 and 1866. So as opposed to creating an affirmative right to vote, they came up with this, you know, weird system where they could single out Southern states that had large uh, percentages of African-Americans as a part of their population. And so the idea that targeting jurisdictions has it, it's just that it's bad has always been very weird to me when I write about this provision that was designed to target the South. Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought of that in section two of the 14th Amendment in, in that way. I was thinking about um, the Violence Against Women Act case. The Violence Against Women Act, yes. Um, where the Supreme, this conservative Supreme Court there is upset that Congress uh, didn't single out the bad actors <laughs> because it said it, Congress acted too broadly by subjecting right. states to certain rules when those states were um, gender equality states and didn't target the states that were proven to be not gender equality states. So the court has kind of sp spoken inconsistently on this point, I yeah. think. 
And a lot of a lot of it, and and, and it kind of it kind of goes to this this broader point too about the court's role in in policing elections during this time of COVID more generally, right? A lot of the the courts a, a lot of the courts approach is judicially created, and we forget that there's nothing in the Constitution that necessarily mandates the things that they do in these cases, right? So you brought up the Violence Against Women Act, right? This idea that legislation has to be congruent and proportional. That's what the court says, right? That you know, congruent is in proportion as a way of trying to limit Congress's ability to legislate outside of the scope of what the what the court says the Constitution protects, right? Um, and so, but there there's nothing that demands that other than the court saying that that's what appropriate legislation is, right? Um, but we sort of take this as gospel, and in some ways we have to because these these issues go up to the court. Um, but taking things as gospel, I view is is different from sort of understanding the court's position on certain things. Like we still have an obligation, in my view, of attacking some of these things, some of these inconsistencies. If it means that the right to vote isn't getting full protection because the court has created a rule that has no mooring in the Constitution, appropriate does not have to mean congruent and proportional. Justice Kennedy, happy belated birthday, Justice Kennedy, by the way came up with this 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 language, right? This is not something that is, you know, um, written in the constitution. And so I think it's really important in thinking about the importance of the right to vote, that we also have an obligation to push back against rules that will limit the scope of those protections. Um, and, and in some ways, um, the failure to push back is why we are in a situation where we are in a once in a lifetime global pandemic and the court has not been very good on voting rights issues during this pandemic. Um, but there isn't much pushback because we've let the system build up to the, the current situation in which the court is just simply piling on, right? So we've been saying the right to vote is important. Strict scrutiny used to apply. 30 years later, we've moved away from that. Now we're living in this pandemic. And the court can sort of rely on these rules as they've evolved over the last 30 years to undermine the right to vote, right? And so right now we're living through the worst of it because we've taken as gospel the rules that the court has laid out without sort of, and, and you know, I don't, I don't mean to suggest that people have not written about the court's positions as being uh, hypocritical or not based in the constitution. Um, but just like this constant beating of the drum to say, this is not right, <laughs> right? This is not how the constitution should be read. This is not historically correct. Um, this, I, I think, especially those of us on the left, like I, I admit, I am a flaming liberal, right? I, I, I do, I believe that if people, my my only goal as a scholar is to help people vote, right? That's, you know, I, I tend to think that that's not something that should be partisan, <laughs> but, but, you know, um, there's a lot I just of, want to interrupt just to say that I yeah. consider you a person of integrity. You can lame, label yourself politically, but you are <laughs> too honest a scholar not to second guess yourself. Um, I mean, this I think is true. This is, yes, I, you know, in, in my work, I try to be as honest as possible. I've written some pieces that people on the left hate me for, like I, I admit it. But, but I do think that on some level, there's a level of acceptance, though. So the court, after Shelby County, um, People were upset, but we can sort of accept as a given the Supreme Court's view of the world, right? The, the idea that, you know, the baseline is that the states regulate and any congressional action is acceptable. I mean, I'm sorry, exceptional and thus should be strictly scrutinized, right? Like 
not strict scrutiny in the traditional sense, but like the court is going to disfavor federal intervention. Why do we accept that as the baseline? And I have to check myself on doing that when I'm writing and thinking about these issues and sort of we need to push back on sort of the foundational um, lay of the land stuff that the court has articulated with respect to how our system works. And we don't do enough of that. So that's what I mean when I say there's not sufficient pushback. Well, I do want to talk more about the court, both in general and then what it's going on this year as we head to November. But um, going back to the wish list, perhaps, for the um, piece of legislation that would honor Representative Lewis, um, a thought occurred to me as we were um, engaged on this point. Mm -hmm. Should it be a piece of legislation or should it be a constitutional amendment? I mean, normally we don't name constitutional amendments for individuals, but I wonder if the moment needs a new statute or a new amendment or or both. Um, Um, So... A constitutional amendment would be appropriate, right? Just laying out an explicit right to vote. Um, It will put to rest a lot of the issues that election law scholars have struggled with in terms of um, when you have judicially created rights or judicially inferred rights, um, what the court giveth, the court can take away. Um, And so a constitutional amendment would go a long way towards addressing some of that. Um, And also just the the issues about... um, put into rest things that have festered in the case law for three decades, right? There are far too many issues surrounding the right to vote that ter- that rise or fall on five, four majorities. Um, a constitutional amendment will fix some of that. What a statute can't fix is the court's interpretation of Congress's constitutional authority. A constitutional amendment can fix that. Um, and so, you know, the ultimate way to honor uh, Representative Lewis and others who've given their lives in this fight is to pass a constitutional amendment. Absolutely. Um, barring that, there are you know pieces of legislation out there that can still go a long way towards making the system better. So HR one, right? HR one is um, was I think the first piece of legislation uh, proposed in 2018 when the Democrats took the House back. Um, that provision makes some very important changes to our system of elections. Right? It mandates independent commissions for federal districts. It um, requires the reenfranchisement of people with felony convictions for purposes of voting in federal, in federal elections. Um, so, I mean, there are things that are, you know, have been proposed and floating out there that can be enacted in order to honor um, Representative Lewis. But I think you're right. A constitutional amendment would, um, that's, a, that, that's a game changer. Right. And one of the reasons why I ask that is, is my sense is that the current Supreme Court this year is actually rolling back some of the precedents. I mean, again, a lot of these cases are 5-4, there's ambiguity, but I had thought or had hoped that even after the Crawford, Indiana voter ID case from 2008, there was a basic principle under the one person, one vote doctrine that comes from the 1960s that the court existed to make sure that every eligible voter had an adequate opportunity to cast a ballot. And you might not be able to invalidate a voter ID law on grounds of inconvenience or that it was a hassle because the plaintiffs there brought this so-called facial challenge to try to knock the law out completely. And the Supreme Court in a divided decision said, no, we're not going to do that, but we will take each voter, you know, one voter at a time. And if that voter can show a, a barrier to participation that's not appropriate 
for that individual who's attempted to comply with the ID requirement but been unable to do so because of poverty or, or some other burden, it sounded like the court was going to protect that voter on an individual basis. And it seemed like the lower courts were being faithful to that. A little messy, all of this litigation. Again, it's easier to bring class action lawsuits than a voter-by-voter um, voter lawsuit. But at least in principle, it seemed like there was protection of voting rights. This year, frankly, I've been disappointed in that that basic protection doesn't seem to be there, whether it's the Texas case about who gets to qualify for an absentee ballot because of a, um, a kind of a pre-existing condition that makes them more at risk for illness because of the virus, or whether it's the Florida case involving um, folks who are supposed to be re-enfranchised based on the constitutional amendment that Florida adopted for its state constitution, but not allowed to vindicate that because of so-called um, back payment obligations that can't be specified by the state. It seems like the courts are not doing their job, or at least the, the job as I understood it from the one person, one vote doctrine. And that suggests a kind of backsliding or erosion of precedent that I, I, it seems to me a constitutional amendment would be necessary. And, and, and hopefully, if the constitutional amendment were written properly, it would obligate the courts to enforce it whether they wanted to or not, and therefore do that, do the job of protecting voting rights. So I agree like 98%. I just have a small quibble. Um, and I think this is our good cop, bad cop, right? You're a good cop, I'm bad cop. I, I would actually suggest that the case law is operating exactly like it's supposed to. Hmm. And that's the problem, right? And so I think we have to get away from thinking about the court and the current the current court in particular as doing anything other than what the case law was set up to do. Um, so, so let me, let me make the point by, by even drawing on Crawford, right? In Crawford, there was some disagreement between Justice Scalia and Justice Stevens about what the appropriate standard should be, right? Like Justice Scalia was pretty much of the opinion that states should be able to do whatever they want to do, right? This is a restriction that applies to everyone. Um, it's non-discriminatory in his view. And so therefore, what this are we the, talking about? This is the ID law. The, the Yes, the voter ID law case that you just discussed. Um, he was he was way more permissive in terms of what courts can what states can do so long as it's non-discriminatory and applies to everyone. Um, whereas Justice Stevens seemed to endorse more of a sliding scale. Right. He was trying to leave room for situations where a restriction might have a um an impact on a larger segment of the population and therefore warrant a, a higher standard of review from the court, right? So if more people are disenfranchised under the Indiana law, for example, um, and that the you know plaintiffs were able to show that, because it was a facial challenge, right? So that was part of the problem. If the plaintiffs are actually able to show that the Indiana law would have a huge impact on a large segment of the population, Justice Stevens was more willing to apply something approaching strict scrutiny than Justice uh, Scalia would. But keep in mind that Justice Stevens' articulation of the standard left room for what Justice uh, Scalia cared about, right? This idea that rational basis review should apply to laws that, uh, that apply to everyone, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, although, I mean, this gets complicated, but Stevens starts his opinion talking about the poll tax case, the Harper he case, does. which wasn't across the board requirement that everybody pay the poll tax, but the court invalidated that as an inappropriate barrier, right? Even if it was technically across the board. Right, but he argued opinion, that it was, 
He I'm argued sorry. that it was completely irrelevant to voter qualifications, though, which I think is an important distinction. Um, and that's why he almost used that point to justify the application of strict scrutiny as opposed to um, the actual. And this is the, the problem with the, the legal fictions here. Right. The poll tax was racially discriminatory, but Harper wasn't written as a racial discrimination case. Right. right. And so Stevens sort of latches on to this idea that it's irrelevant to voter qualifications and therefore strict scrutiny applies. The problem with that is that many of the restrictions that we are dealing with as a practical matter are related to voter qualifications in some way, right? And so the reality is that we're living in a world that's more close to Justice Scalia's point than Justice Stevens' vision of the Harper standard applying to restrictions that are unrelated to the right to vote. That's such a small universe that for all practical circumstances, the fact that Justice Stevens's approach could accommodate Justice Scalia's, this is a non-discriminatory regulation that applies to everyone, that essentially became the governing standard, right? Because that's sort of most regulations because they're looking at it independent of effect. Um, and so, you know, if that's the world we're living in, if we're living in a world where the court is amenable to most regulations, um, and we have never been clear on the the amount of the effect that would trigger the higher standard of review. It's varied, right? It's varied in the lower courts. Um, for all intents and purposes, the Supreme Court has basically endorsed a rule that allows most state regulations to exist regardless of effect because they have this sliding scale, right. in to, my view. Um, to put this, at least for my mind, in a sort of a practical point that mm -hmm. thinking about November, and I draw on here the Wisconsin case from April. Um, mm -hmm. One of the facts that emerged was this, in my view, terrible condition where voters had properly requested an absentee ballot mm -hmm. on time, never got it, uh, and so couldn't cast it. And we're told you have to go to the polls even with the virus, which isn't really appropriate for some voters because they've got reasons, legitimate reasons why they couldn't possibly go to the polls. Um, so that was outright disenfranchisement. That wasn't just a hassle or an inconvenience. That was a complete barrier. It, under the Justice Stevens interpretation, I would have thought that that kind of disenfranchisement would be rendered unconstitutional, given the combination of the Harper poll tax case and Reynolds versus Sims, one person, one vote, and this sort of basic sense that the Constitution and the Equal Protection Clause exists to guarantee this equal access to the ballot, which would have been denied these voters who had done what they were supposed to do. But I think you're right that under the more harsh Justice Scalia view, it's just a general rule. Everybody applies at, you know, to, to vote according to Wisconsin's stated rules, and some people are lucky to get their ballot and other people are unlucky. Uh, and you know, sorry, but you're disenfranchised. It's not unconstitutional. So that's where I see a real fork in the road uh, right. in the in the protection that the Constitution either does or doesn't apply. And, you know, up until this year, I, I thought that um, the center would hold in a sense and that the Stevens vision would would protect voters. But now I think we're living in and Justice Scalia is not with us anymore. But I think it's jurisprudence is the governing jurisprudence and it is not voter protection jurisprudence. Yeah, and, and, and that's essentially my point. As long as the standard leaves, leaves room for Justice Scalia's approach, then these it will always turn on how the court is, com the composition of the court. Right. Um, and it didn't used to be like that. Like strict scrutiny meant that 
strict scrutiny. And it hasn't been that way in a long time, right? So Anderson, which we, we call it the, what, the Burdick, Anderson, Crawford framework of, you know, sort of trying to balance the, um, the effects of the law against the state's justification. Anderson was like 1982. Like this isn't, it isn't like this is a new thing. But once the court opened the door for that, then yes, the right to vote and the scope of the right will always be heavily dependent on, upon the justices on the court. And that is a very weird way to approach rights enforcement. Well, you and I are law professors, so maybe we should leave my next question to the political scientists. But I am curious, given that we're talking about you know, honoring Representative Lewis and thinking about the long term, you know, if you could just imagine hypothetically that um, the Democrats uh, take control of the Senate, keep control of the House and win the presidency, um, but don't have a filibuster proof filibuster proof majority. So they have maybe 51, 52 senators, but not 60. Um, you know, what what do you think is the right public messaging campaign and the right fight to take to the the airwaves and the American people in terms of, of voting rights going forward in John Lewis's name? Is it is it to try to get 67 votes in both houses of Congress for an amendment because that's what's essential to secure? Is it to try to pass with 51 votes through something through the Senate and say, we're going to get rid of the filibuster? Um, I mean, I do think, you know, I look back on year 2009 when President Obama came to office, and that was a time where the Democrats had the Senate and the House. And it was a time of economic catastrophe, and so they had to pass the bailout bill. And then President Obama understandably turned to health care and the fight over so-called, you know, Obamacare, as it became known. Um, but there was a two-year period where voting rights could have been adopted, a new piece of legislation, uh, and, and that moment was not seized. And then, of course, the control um, flipped in terms of the Senate, and the Republicans took back the Senate. Um, you know, the, this is probably a longer conversation. As you know, I like election law to be fair to a competitive two-party system, but I am interested in the, in the idea of whether or not one party can actually put up a set of rules that is fair for both parties because it's just structurally fair and protects the individual right to vote. So I'm I've been wondering, you know, what is the right strategy to actually secure voting rights, you know, if if the conditions are at least marginally favorable for doing so in January of, of next year. I think the answer to that question is heavily dependent upon um, what happens in November of this year. Um, we tend to rule by crisis. So depending on um, how bad November is, just in terms of access and voting and whether people are able to, um, whether people receive their absentee ballots, whether people you know, are standing in line four or five and six hours, um, I do think that that could provide some momentum for movement on these issues come January. Uh, my fear is that those things will happen anyway, and then we'll have another postmortem, just like we had a postmortem after 2012. And then, um, you know, I think uh, President Obama put together a bipartisan commission to study that election, and they made some recommendations. And and it just seems like, you know, we really like these uh, ex post, <laughs> you know, <laughs> studies of what went wrong, and then we don't do anything to prevent the next crisis. Um, and so I so I think that if 
everyone is paying attention, right? Think about this conversation we're having now and conversations we've had about how things could could be, you know, catastrophic in November, right? There, I mean, it's entirely possible that the election could be closed. You know, we could have another split between the electoral college and the popular vote. Um, things are so polarized and, you know, we're, and we're living through a once in a lifetime global pandemic, right? And so we have all of these different layers that are um, causing election law scholars to basically have panic, panic, panic attacks daily, right? Um, and, you know, depending on what happened, depending on what happens in November, I think that the question will be, will we think back to how we felt in July? Or if everything goes right in November, will we just simply ignore that everything we were talking about in July was a distinct possibility, but just because it didn't manifest, then we forget about it. And in January, we're talking about something other than changing our, you know, changing the scope of, of the right to vote and our system of elections in, in a way that it makes it work better for everyone. Right. So, so much of that discussion in January will be informed by what happens between now and the end of the year. Um, and in some ways, that's unfortunate because we, we can all agree that the system is broken and something needs to happen. But whether or not we move on it depends on what happens come November 3rd. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Hey, can I ask you one detail about what you mentioned about H.R. 1, the bill that was put forward when the Democrats did win the House of Representatives in, in 2018? Because um, I was really interested. It was a piece about um, reenfranchising ex-felons for federal elections. Because mm -hmm. um, you had mentioned earlier, I think, um, about how under our sort of a basic constitutional assumptions, Congress has the power... Um, to choose the time, place, and manner, sort of the procedural mm -hmm. for federal elections, but that apart from the constitutional amendments that we do have, um, the default position is that states determine voter qualification. Right. So I was concerned or and interested in whether or not that piece would actually be unconstitutional and without a con new constitutional amendment, because couldn't a state make an argument, even if I don't like it as a policy matter, yeah, absolutely. that that that's that's the part of election law that belongs to them, even for federal elections, because it's about who can vote, not how to vote. Oh, yeah. So I definitely think that that is probably the weakest part of the legislation in terms of having constitutional support. Um, but I do think that there are arguments that can be made. Like, for example, Congress often reaches voter qualification standards in, in legislating um, under time, place and manner. Right. So the, uh, an example would be. Uh, the Uniform Overseas, I always mess it up, it's UACAVA, but it's Uniform Overseas Citizen Something Something Voting Act. The military right? and the, overseas Right, the, the, the piece of legislation, federal legislation that um, provides a federal ballot for military, military serving overseas and also people who live overseas. Um, and so it is a regulation of sorts of voter qualifications, right? Um, indirectly, Right. Because it, it says that the people who can access the ballot have to be uh, comply with the voter qualifications of their states. But one if one is like a super formalist, the state itself. And this used to be the case. And in fact, if you look at the Civil War, Lincoln actually had this concern. Right. So he um, told some of his generals to actually let the soldiers go back home so that they, they could vote in time for the 1864 oh. elections, as opposed to putting um um, a structure in place to sort of facilitate their voting or allowing them to vote because he did view that as being within the province of the states. But federal law bypasses all of that now, right? And and so it, in some ways it kind of gets rolled up in time, place, and manner. Um, and that's not the only example. Uh, if you think about proof of citizenship requirements to register to vote under the National Voter Registration Act, 
the uh, federal law says that uh, people do not have to have documentary proof of citizenship. Whereas um, some states recently tried to impose a documentary proof of citizenship where you have to show a birth certificate and other things to register to vote. Now, voter registration is considered a manner regulation, but citizenship is considered a voter qualification standard, right? And so these things often get intertwined in a way that suggests that if, um, at least in my work, um, if there's a, a reasonable argument that certain exercises of state power could undermine turnout in federal elections, I think the federal interest is sufficiently weighty for Congress to be able to touch on some issues, even if it encompasses voter qualifications. But if you want absolute certainty about the constitutional validity of H.R. 1, a constitutional amendment would be very important for this because a constitutional amendment could give Congress this power directly. Right. Um, but yeah, I do think that there are some arguments that could be made. Um, and in fact, if you look at the history, voter qualifications and matter regulations are often difficult to disentangle. Like is a voter identification law, a voter qualification standard, or is it a manner regulation? Um, these are questions that we talk about as, as voting rights scholars, but it has important practical um, consequences for who can regulate. Um, and I don't think the answer is clear. Right. No, that makes sense. This may be an area where, again, we're, you and I are in agreement 98% with a little 2% yeah. di <laughs> divergent. Yeah, no, I agree that there's some constitutional concerns about that particular piece of H.R. 1. Because um, just to be really simplistic about it, I, I take it that if Congress tried to pass a federal law saying, you know what, for congressional elections, we'd love 16-year-olds um, adolescents to be able to vote. We we think they're sufficiently qualified. We want to get people into the system early. They're in high school. They're enthusiastic. So now for state elections like governor or mayor, that the states can do that. But for, for federal office, we're going to say you're, if you're 16, you're good enough for us. I don't think Congress could do oh, that. Oh, I don't disagree at all. Yeah. But I do think it's more um, controversial when you have a situation like Florida where the people passed a constitutional amendment to reenfranchise those with felony convictions. The state legislature comes in and passes a law requiring all payment of fines and fees on the ground. That law is very difficult to implement because a, a lot of times the state does not have a record of how much money people owe. <laughs> right. I think that in that situation, Congress can come in and say, look, um, we want to reenfranchise felons for purposes of voting um, in federal elections, especially in Florida, because there is evidence that uh, Florida is misusing its authority over voter qualifications in a way that affects turnout and participation in federal elections. One of the um, the point, one of the arguments behind having the elections clause and giving Congress the power to weigh in on time, place and manner was to protect federal elections. And I have a difficult time reading the Constitution in a way that would allow states to circumvent that just because it deals with voter qualifications and not time, place and manner directly, particularly when um, you have a comprehensive piece of legislation like H.R. 1 that has an overarching goal of increasing turnout and participation in federal elections and making federal elections more fair. If you look at the various provisions and then saying, well, this one piece is unconstitutional, even though it is uh, adopted with the same purpose in mind. Right. Like I just I, I, I get no. it. You know, but I, I resist re readings of the Constitution that would just simply push states to achieve the same aim in a different way, particularly when you have evidence that states are abusing that authority and it does have an impact on federal elections. Yeah, no, that, I, I hear you. I, I, I want to think yeah. more about that because I, I, I and I agree with I basically agree with you that the line between 
procedure and substance can get yeah. very, very. But it's not or, clean. Right. Like I definitely get the argument that you know, hey, that's a voter qualification standard, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. but. I do think though, and maybe this is. Uh, I want to get back to the Florida case in a second because it's important. But I also mm-hmm. think, as as we as we go into November and and as polarized and as polemical as some of the debates can be, I think given the fact that some of the constitutional lines are not clean, and even if I would say that I would be a dissenter in agreement with Justice Ginsburg or Justice Kagan in some of these cases, um, I want to be very in my. I'm speaking solely for myself. Um, even if I don't like some of the five four decisions. I don't want to accuse the Chief Justice in particular of bad faith if he's struggling with some of the difficult line drawing problems that we're struggling with. Because if, 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 if it is in a gray area and reasonable people can disagree, then it's hard for me to condemn somebody if they draw the line in a slightly different place than I would draw the line if we acknowledge that it's gray. gray. And I think some of the rhetoric that I've seen over the last month or so that's been disappointed and upset with the Supreme Court, as I have been, I think it's been a little hot for my taste because it doesn't acknowledge the grayness of some of these these cases. But maybe that's yeah. just my temperament. I don't know. That's you, I, Just generally, I have never been one for uh, casting blame, in a sense. It doesn't help <laughs> in any way to say, you know, that someone is acting in good faith or bad faith. Um, someone can be acting in good faith and still come to a conclusion that ends up disenfranchising a lot of people just because that's their view of the world. What I want the Supreme Court to do is get away from this view of deservedness when it comes to voting. Right. Even when there are structural um, barriers to exercising the right to vote, they tend to view it as within the fault of the voter. If they haven't successfully navigated the structures that the state has have put in place to make it more difficult to vote. We have to get away from that. Right. Um, And even if you think about Shelby County and the invalidation of a portion of the preclearance regime is still sort of based in this idea of deservedness. Right. This is why he looks at the turnout rates in the South and he's like, look, you know, he being the chief justice, you know, African-American turnout is in parity with white turnout. Right. Uh, Part of the reason that's important is because those voters have proven that they care about voting and have done what they needed to do in order to vote. It doesn't matter if the state has put barriers in place that will artificially depress turnout, right? It's less about what the state has done and more about what voters have done to overcome the barriers in place. Yeah. If we can get that has nothing to do with, you know, accusing them of of acting in bad faith. They can rightly believe that that is the way the world operates. And my position is, is that that is the wrong view. Right. No. That, and we talk. I mean, I think we need to talk about this more. I know we've touched on it in the past, but save it for a different mm-hmm. conversation. Um just because we're coming up on, I think, on our time constraint. I, the thing that worries me most about the Florida decision, I guess, is two things. One is, is, is you and I very early on in the in our podcasting were optimistic that the Flor- that the earlier judicial rulings in this Florida case were a wonderful sign of of enfranchisement because, as a practical matter, uh, this constitutional amendment that the citizens of Florida wanted on a bipartisan basis to allow people to vote seemed to be our system working. And even though the Florida legislature was inappropriately hostile to that, the courts seemed to be saying, we're going to protect voting rights again. And, and, and so then for this sort of temporary emergency stay ruling to kind of come out of, um, I'm not yeah. really nowhere, but it sort of felt like it was coming out of nowhere um, procedurally uh, from the Court of Appeals, uh, and then for the Supreme Court to kind of let that stand, 
uh, as a practical matter, may you know rip away what seemed like this wonderful victory in terms of expanding the franchise in a, in a you know in a major states. I, I don't know. There may be still time for the appeal process to work its way through by November, but I'm not optimistic. I don't think so. And yeah. I think um, and 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 I think it is almost. You know, Kafka, Catch-22, it's this bizarre situation where you have to pay money, but you don't know how much money you have to pay. So it's like, mm -hmm. it seems for the, the judicial system to freeze it now just seems so hostile to the basic concept of voting rights. I, I just think, as it just goes to deservingness, right? This is a demographic, people with felony convictions who under a, you know, antebellum conception of the right to vote don't deserve to vote, right? This is still social contract stuff. <laughs> These people broke the social concept, the contract, which in the year of our Lord 2020 is a very weird conception of voting in a quote unquote democracy, right? Um, and so I just think that we are living at a time where a lot of the, the a lot of the views that um, at least I assumed went out the window with the adoption of the 65 Voting Rights Act, right? Because I do think that even though it was targeted towards helping to uh, enfranchise African-Americans, it really did embody this universal view of voting, right? That, you know, the barriers that made it difficult for this demographic to vote also affected other portions of the population, right? That were entitled to vote. That's why we expanded it. You know, we it was expanded to language minorities. Um, you know, subs subsequent reauthorizations expanded it to other jurisdictions. It was expanded to other uh, mechanisms that were also viewed as disenfranchising. Like, this is all a part of a vision of the right to vote as being something that should be accessed by all. Um, but I think the assumption is that, you know, that with that view, certain assumptions about who is entitled to vote and who has proven that they are worthy to vote, I has assumed that that went out the window. But I think the, the jurisprudence from this year really reveals that in many ways we're still living in the 18th century, right? This idea that people have to, you know, be worthy of the vote in order, they have to earn the vote. This is why you have politicians referring to it as a privilege instead of a right. That is very intentional. Right. Um, and so in many ways, moving forward, we not only have to attack the barriers that are put up in order to prevent people from voting, we also have to attack the very concept of voting itself as a privilege as opposed to being a right. Well, so um, maybe one thing that you and I can do is we kind of monitor the process both this year and into next year and into the future. You know, even if we don't say it every time, maybe always in the back of our minds, we're we're asking the question. You know, what would John Lewis think? What How would, would John he be? Lewis think? I'm sorry. No, I was repeating you. I agree. What would John Lewis think? Yeah. How would he? Me are we measuring up? What would he say of how we're doing? And you know, from time to time, I hope we actually you know explicitly check in on that question and see how we're doing and mm -hmm. and seeing where we are i think that that is a perfect last word what would john lewis think well with that um stay safe stay healthy and i look forward to our next conversation absolutely take care Ned. you too fernita bye-bye that's our episode for today thanks for listening and thanks to eric french at ohio state and larissa puro at usc for their roles in producing this podcast. Fernita and I very much appreciate all the support we receive at both our home institutions to make this joint endeavor possible.